Where's a damn exorcist when you need one? What took you so long? I was about to- Oh, hi, traveler. Um, it's really not a good time, I'm afraid. Oh, dear. And yet, I, I can't seem to let you go. You'll be a sitting duck out there. Come, quickly. Drink this. What's the matter? It won't harm you. Just drink it. Now. Ugh, I suppose you'll want an explanation. And you'll have one. This way, please. See, we call it the Blood Reaver. It's been ten years since the last time I saw it. <sighs> We're gonna have to go into a room I don't particularly like. What's in the brew you just drank? Well, it's a mix of sandworms, a tinge of crushed black widow legs, and the blood of... <laughs> well, perhaps you're better off not knowing. This room belonged to the second owner of the inn, Otis Gelstead. Otis came into this inn along with his daughter, Amelia. He called her his little wildflower. An avid adventurer she was, much like his dad. She took strolls around the inn, wandering off through trails seldom stepped by the human feet. On one of those trips, Amelia never came home. A search around the woods ensued, and eventually, they found her. She tripped along a slippery set of rocks and fell right on her neck. The servants assured their master that it was a painless death. Oh dear, I need to find a crystal to trap the reaver, or else I'd eventually find us both. Don't move an inch. I think she's gone. Quite a strong scent it carries, don't you think? It reminds me of sour milk. Learned from Otis's mistake, Traveler. You can't bring back the dead. See, he just couldn't accept that his daughter was gone. He traveled around the world looking for a way to bring back his little wildflower, regardless of the cost or consequence. And a hefty price he paid indeed. His daughter must have meant the world to him. Otis's resolve reminds me of a woman who visited us some time ago. The cat lady. Oh, a lovely woman. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone so devoted to their pets. Come, grab a seat over there. No, use the other chair. You don't want to sit on the one with the black skulls. <laughs> Unless, of course, you want an Ugandan demon lord to slurp up your soul. I used to have three beautiful cats, Chloe, Jewel, and Mercy. My sweet girls. I had the perfect family, a husband, Greg, my son, Dylan, and of course, the cats. Jewel was the snitch, always pacing around the table, warbling for whatever we had. She had developed a taste for green beans. Mercy was the prim lady, always cleaning herself, always sitting on the bookshelves, and always found where I hid the cat treats. Chloe was my favorite, though. Whenever my lap was available, she was sitting there. At night, she'd sleep at the foot of the bed. 
In the morning, she'd wake me up by kneading my chest. Greg would laugh and say she was just making sure my heart hadn't stopped. Her version of Kitty CPR. Greg and I were considering getting just one more when the accident happened. Greg was on the way to the clinic with the cats to update their vaccinations and, well, I'm almost thankful that my babies didn't suffer. I lost my cats and my husband all at once. Dylan was already a grown man, and after barely four months after the loss, he took off for college. I was all alone in my house, and my broken heart showed no sign of mending. Dylan barely came to visit, and after the first five years, I was lucky to get a card for Christmas. I became the old crazy witch on the block with a dead husband. The kids made up their stories. I mostly just sat on my front porch and enjoyed the sun when it came out. The heat made my sore joints feel better. Then I met Goliath. My neighborhood is very close to a wooded park. On my days off from work at the grocery store, Greg and I used to walk down those quiet paths. But there was also a feral cat problem there. I'd catch only glimpses of their skinny bodies and wild eyes. But while I knitted on the front porch one morning, a streak of fur caught my attention, and I saw him. Immediately, I dubbed him Goliath. He was enormous. A tomcat that was bigger than some dogs. He had a mean face, matted long fur, and torn up ears. But he had the same coloring as Chloe, black with mottled orange and brown. He came to a stop in front of the porch and froze, staring at me. I stared back. His tail twitched. His amber eyes bore right into mine. Here, kitty kitty. Goliath slowly stepped closer to the porch, stopping at the steps. When I got up and tried to get closer, Goliath darted away and ran into the bushes. He didn't trust me. But I was so lonely. Even a big old mean cat like that could give me some sort of companionship. I went inside and got some canned tuna, opening it up and setting it at the steps. After I retreated to my chair, Goliath returned. He smelled the tuna. He licked his chops and stared at the can, but he was nervous around me. So I went inside. When I came back a few minutes later, Goliath was focused on licking out the can. I made a friend that day. Goliath took forever to get used to me. The mistrusting kitty who had never felt a human's touch. But he didn't leave. He took to sleeping in the tire swing in the front yard. Greg never got around to taking the damn thing down when Dylan grew too old for it. Goliath showed up for lunch every day. I'd feed him tuna and chatter to him. He'd purr like a semi-truck. Then one day, he brought a date. A gray tabby with a short tail and a missing eye. I went to the store that night and invested in bulk bags of dry food and the canned stuff. Duchess, the gray tabby, didn't hesitate to make herself at home in the tree outside. Neither did the others. It was a trickle and never consistent. One day, I'd just have Goliath and Duchess. The next day, there would be six or seven meowing babies ready for lunch. 
For the first time in years, I felt whole. Like I had a purpose again, to take care of these innocent creatures. Most wouldn't come close, but Goliath had become my friend. While I watched the sunset, Goliath would sprawl across my lap and would purr when I scratched his ears. But of course, the new neighbors didn't take so kindly to my new friends. It was one family in particular, the Hubbards. The Hubbards had five boys between seven and 14. All of them were incredibly ill-behaved. This was the same family that tried to claim that the lovely Hakeem family was building bombs in their garage. Their eldest daughter was actually building an automatic feeder for their dog. And that the reason that one house down the street wasn't selling was because we had Alec and Derek living together in sin. The poor couple actually moved away from how awful the harassment got. So when the wife Carla saw me with my cats, she threw a fit. She slammed her trash bin shut and marched over to my yard. The Shire cats ran off to the backyard, while Goliath sat content on my lap, unamused by this intruder. I nervously smiled. Good afternoon, Carla. These are just some of the strays I like to take care of. They're harmless, maybe a bit flea-bitten, but they do no harm. Carla huffed and glared at Goliath. That one looks like a wild cat. He could hurt my boys. And why are you wasting money feeding these... these strays when you could have been donating to the church food drive? To calm my nerves, I stroked Goliath's ears. Goliath won't hurt a soul that won't hurt him. And I did donate. Well, clearly you have some to spare. Carla flipped her hair over her shoulder, looking down her nose at me. My son already says the neighborhood calls you a witch. Stop attracting these diseased animals, or I'll be forced to call the police. Goliath tilted his ears back and hissed. Almost instantaneously, all the other cats turned and started to circle Carla, lurking, hair standing up their backs and growling. The scene was unnerving, to say the least. Carla backed away, growing pale, before she screamed, Ah! Get away from me! She kicked Kirk across the lawn before she dashed off. The cats immediately gathered around Kirk, licking his face and purring to soothe him. I got up to check on him. Nothing was hurt except for the neutered Tom's pride. I reassured them. The police wouldn't do a thing about my babies. They weren't destroying property or using the other yards as their toilet. They didn't even meow loudly at night. Well, they didn't. That night became an entire chorus of yowls. I checked out of my bedroom window to see a whole clutter of cats gathered in the Hubbard's front yard. There had to be at least 25 to 30. In front was Goliath. I could make out his quivering hollers out of the rest. The minute a light would go on inside the house, the cats would scatter, leaving none in sight. I think a few times I saw Carla's husband, John, pitch something out of the window. Probably a bottle, considering the crash of glass. But as far as I could tell, none made it close to a feline target. Even though it was wrong, I giggled like a schoolgirl before shutting off the light and going to bed. I'd had cats in the past. I could sleep through it.
The next morning, Carla was banging on my door, clearly exhausted after a night with no sleep. A paper was shoved in my face. I almost got bopped across the nose. Your neighbors aren't happy with you, Doris. Carla had the nerve to look smug. We petition that you take care of your cat problem, stop feeding them, hire an animal control service. Just do it. I took the petition and read down the list of names. There wasn't as many as Carla would make me think. And the families that did sign up were her lackeys. The ones who kept their negativity to themselves until someone spoke up about it. I sighed and lowered the petition. <sighs> Carla... It wasn't anything I did that made the cats loud last night. They were in your yard, weren't they? My turn to look smug. That knocked the wind out of Carla's sails. She stammered for a second before snatching the petition out of my hands. This is your last warning. If you don't do something about these cats, I will. With that, she stormed off and would have looked awfully haughty had not Goliath darted from the bushes and tripped her. Carla fell flat on her nose, and Goliath ran up to me, rubbing himself against my ankles and purring before entering my house. That was the first time Goliath entered my house. I never tried to take him in, but I was determined to keep him. A trim of his fur to get out the worst of the mats, a bath, and a collar later. Goliath looked like a real prince, a champion of his breed. He seemed to have a goal in mind, though. That goal was to drive the Hubbards insane. It was war, and Goliath was the general. The nightly choruses were lessened, just enough so that the neighbors wouldn't hear so well, but completely obnoxious to the Hubbard household. The grass was going dead from the cats pissing in the yard, along with piles of dirt from where they handled their business. Dead birds were strewn across their yard, and I heard Carla screaming about the fact a cat had taken an enormous poop right outside her door, ruining her heels. Goliath got an extra pat on the back for that. But the Hubbards weren't going to play nice. Every day, their boys would ride past my yard, yelling obscenities and chucking rocks at the cats. The slower ones would get struck, and they would mew and cry out in pain. When blood was drawn, Goliath would usher them inside, and I'd care for them for the night. It was a step too far when John put rat poison in his yard. Duchess. Poor Duchess. She'd mistakenly eaten half of the tuna can left in his yard, laced with the deadly ground-up pellets. I found her barely alive on my porch. All I could do was take her inside and make her comfortable. All the cats came in, through the windows, through the cracked door. I think even some made it up from the basement. There was probably 50 cats all sitting around me and Duchess as she curled up on my lap, each breath growing lighter and lighter. Goliath was the most distressed, pacing around, mewing, licking Duchess's head every few seconds. I never knew a cat could love so much. When Duchess went lax, and her breath came no more, he yelled so loudly, I'm sure the whole town could hear it. A grieving cat, who lost his friend and love. It was exhausting to dig the grave. 
but I had to do it for her. Duchess was nothing but sweet once I'd gotten her to come around. The cats stayed with me, mewing in distress and nudging at the small coffin I'd crafted for Duchess out of a box and some paints. She was a lady, and she was going out in style. Her body was lowered, the dirt covering the box, and I went to bed. Goliath slept with me that night, and I swore I would occasionally awake to hear him cry. The next day, I could barely get out of bed, but Goliath nudged me awake. I had to take care of the others still, after all. Carla was swearing and screaming at her car when I exited the house, and I could barely believe it. A single cat didn't have much strength, but an army? Oh boy. The car was covered in cat pee and feces. The antenna chewed off, one of the windows was somehow broken, and the seats were torn to hell. She turned and saw me, foaming at the mouth in anger. You! She stormed over, her fists clenched. Goliath nudged me back, and I hid behind the door, my throat dry. Y yes I'm sure the woman would have punched me if I hadn't had the door between us. Instead, Carla started screaming. That was my birthday present. I don't know how you're doing this, but this ends now. I took a deep breath and stood as tall and brave as a 68-year-old woman can. You killed one of them. Rat poison. You asked for it. Like you're gonna miss that one. What is the matter with you? I heard the chorus of hisses and growls from under my porch. Carla jumped out of her skin and shivered. She took a deep breath and glared. I swear, if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to make sure each and every one of these cats ends up in the pound or as roadkill. And I mean it. With that awful, awful threat, she stormed off. I stumbled onto the porch and sat in my chair, too nervous to stand. Oh, Goliath, what am I going to do? I whispered. Goliath licked my hand, his way of telling me it would be okay. That evening, I decided to stay out late, watch the moon and stars. The cat stayed with me rather than attack the Hubbard's yard. The sun had just gone down when I heard the sound of children's bikes. It was the Hubbard boys, and they were armed with rocks again. The three youngest aiming at the cats who darted and dodged under the porch or into my backyard. I'm not sure if the older two were aiming for me or it was just an accident, but one rock smacked right next to my head, and the other cut open my forehead. Cried out as pain exploded across my face and blood started to drip down my face. Every cat stopped. Goliath mewed and licked my face before he turned. The growl he made wasn't a typical cat's sound, it was like a demon from hell. Goliath leaped from my lap and trotted closer to the boys, fur puffing out and continuing to growl. The rest of the cats ceased running and grouped up. Some of them I didn't even see leaped down from the tree. 
I had to have over 70 cats in my yard. I didn't even know so many had ever come to see me. The eldest boy stopped his bike, the others falling in behind him. He pulled another rock from his bag. Stupid cat! He pitched his arm back, and Goliath went for his throat. I don't really remember what happened. I think I blacked out. What I can remember is that Goliath grew big. Even bigger than he already was. Even bigger than a lion. And the rest of the cats swarmed behind him. A hive mind of violence and with only one goal. Kill. When I woke up, it was past midnight. There was no sign of the bikes. No boys. No army of cats either. Just a few left licking at a puddle in the street where the bikes had been abandoned. It was a dry summer. There hadn't been a puddle there earlier. I stumbled back to my room, the bed cold and empty of my cat. I fell asleep in bed and dreamed of the ripping of wet flesh and the crunching of bones. The next morning I woke up and there was Goliath, sleeping across the other pillow. He was fine, he wasn't hurt. I tried to ignore the smell of blood in his breath as he nudged my face to get me up. There was no sign of any bikes or puddles. Just a normal plain street like the one I'd gotten used to living on. There wasn't many of the cats today, only four, plus Goliath. These ones that weren't present last night either. Chip, Dill, Biscuit, and Bambi. Bambi had sprawled across my lap and was purring when the police cruiser pulled into my driveway. Dill hid under the porch while Biscuit and Chip ran up to say hello. Officer Holly Silva stepped out with Carla in tow. Carla looked like she'd been crying, but when she saw me, she smirked. I sighed and looked for Goliath, but he was nowhere to be seen. Ma'am? Holly held up her badge, even though she knew I recognized her. I need to speak with you, please. Carla's grin grew darker. I invited Holly inside, and we sat at the table together. Carla invited herself in and was standing in the corner, looking around my pristine house. I thought it'd be more of a mess than this given the animals you have, she grumbled. Holly ignored Carla before clearing her throat and looking at me. Listen, Doris. Last night, two of Carla's sons came home shredded up, and they claimed you sicked your cats on them. Holly took this moment to conspicuously look at Biscuit and Chip, playing with a ball of yarn, still quite kitteny. Her older three never returned home. Have you seen them? I reached up and touched my forehead. I can't really remember. Last night I got my head bumped something awful. I looked meaningfully at Carla, who sneered back. It's not anything serious, but no, I don't remember where the boys went. I think they just rode past the house on their bikes. They were saying some quite nasty things, but that's all I remember. Holly nodded and wrote that down. Thank you, ma'am. 
That's all I needed to know. What? Carla looked ready to blow her top. This isn't even close to all of the cats that she had. My sweet Alexander said there had to be a hundred. Over a hundred! Holly snorted and her lips twitched. She somehow managed to remain professional. <laughs> Miss Hubbard, if Doris really owned over a hundred cats, I don't think she'd be able to hide them well in this two-bedroom house. Well, well, well... Carla stammered before she looked around. Where's that big one, the awful one, the one that attacked my sweet son? Goliath. Oh no. Holly looked at me. Is this all of them? I'm sorry, I have to ask. I looked around. Well, Goliath should be here. Goliath, come here, boy. No one's gonna hurt you. The officer is going to put him down the moment she sees that monster. Don't you try to pretend otherwise. Carla's eyes were full of murder. I was nearly about to start crying. I looked down. There was a fluffy kitten with black and orange fur and bright amber eyes. He jumped into my lap before hopping onto the table and sniffing Holly. Holly examined his collar. So this is Goliath. She couldn't help it. She immediately started giggling. <laughs> oh, the ironic naming style. I dig it. Hey, buddy. Do you smell David? He's my German Shepherd. Oh, he'd love to take care of a sweet little thing like you. Carla was completely flabbergasted. She opened her mouth and shut it a few times before saying, Wha- No! That's not Goliath! Goliath is huge! He's practically a mountain lion! All right, Mrs. Hubbard. Holly stood up and scratched Goliath behind the ears, who purred and teasingly batted at her hand. That's quite enough. I think your boys probably are just out playing somewhere. Let's go now. You can help coordinate the search. I saw them out. Carla was fuming, and now I was the one grinning. Carla turned to me and hissed. This isn't over. I will get the gun myself, and when the real Goliath shows up, I'm putting a bullet in his head. With that nasty threat, she stormed back to her house. I closed the door and turned around. There was Goliath, sitting so proud, his normal self. Nervous, I went to my knees. G Goliath? How... How did you do that? Goliath stepped forward and just batted at my hair. But I swear he smirked. A few days ago, the bones of a few adolescent boys were found. Picked clean. Carla didn't even try to come over. The marks on the bones were larger than anything a cat could make. The word through the grapevine is that it's probably someone's escaped pet lion. Adopted it as a baby and let it go when it was no longer cute. But tonight, I'm holding a party. I invited most of my neighbors. I did my hair up all pretty-like. I'm no longer going to estrange myself from my neighbors. Holly will be there, with her dog David. So will the Hakim family. The eldest girl is going to bring her boyfriend and his band. I'll have to clear out the dining room to give them enough space, but they're fond of classic rock. 
everyone's responded enthusiastically. Even my son Dylan's going to come home and bring his wife and twin children. That should be enough noise to cover up Goliath and his army handling the Hubbards and their goons. In the morning, it'll either be interpreted as a mysterious vanishing or written off as another animal attack. After all, how could a single cat maul a human being? Ah, found it. We can trap the Blood Reaver in this. How long can it stay inside? Well, I have no idea. It depends on how much it's eaten, I guess. See, the Blood Reaver was born here, actually. In this very room. Galstead meddled with mesotopic rituals. Japanese deities, Celtic demons, Hindu goddesses, you name it. His madness worked. But Amelia didn't come back as the beaming child he remembered. You see, the Reaver is Amelia. I would have sought a way to revert it. But he died in the process of doing so. To this day, no one has found a way. The only thing we can really do is grab a crystal out of this cabinet and hope that once it's trapped, it'll stay inside for good. Huh. I don't think we have many crystals left. But we'll cross that bridge when we get there. For now, we just need to focus on trapping it. Why don't I call her Amelia? <sighs> A part of me refuses to think that there's still a little girl inside that abomination. It makes it easier for me to do my job and seal her. You see, these crystals are part of a mirror. The seller alleged that a man disappeared inside of it. It seemed like some sort of portal to another dimension. One of Otis's most questionable attempts to contain the beast he unleashed. But in the end, the shards were. I do pity the soul that got trapped inside. It's such a sad story. Take a listen. It's no secret that I drink. My friends will make jokes like, your idea of a balanced diet is a beer in both hands. I'll laugh with them but I don't miss their pitying smirks. When I'm out, I'm out to have a good time though. And when I'm in, well, either way, it feels like I'm only smiling once I've knocked back a few. I have this weird habit when I'm drinking alone where I like to watch myself get drunk in the mirror. I start off by seeing this drab, aging, overweight slob, and I'll make a game out of drinking until he looks happy. I'll grin and make faces and watch myself laugh and wonder why I can't be like this all the time. I can steal a few hours from reality until my girlfriend gets home from work and we start to bicker, and then everything that didn't exist a moment before is suddenly there again. The second she walks in the door and sees that I've been drinking, the smile disappears from the mirror. Usually we'll have a discussion, although she's the only one talking, so I tend to think of it as a lecture instead. Sometimes she'll give up and let it go, but then there's cases like the other night where she works herself into some kind of frenzy. I guess I'd forgotten to pick her up. I, I knew it was my fault and I apologized, but it didn't matter. Nothing I said got through to her anymore. It was like she couldn't even hear me and she kept getting louder and louder 
until all the words morphed into one long, angry blast, not ceasing until the door slammed behind her. It was just me in the mirror after that, so I took another drink and watched it smile. A big, sloppy smile, too, as wide as I'd ever seen, stretching my face into a caricature of itself. It would have been heartwarming to see if I really had been smiling. I turned my head slowly from side to side, watching the mirror from my peripheral vision. The man in the mirror turned too, matching my movements exactly, giving me full view to all its leering teeth. Meanwhile, I felt my own closed mouth with my hand just to be sure. The mirror was smiling, but I wasn't. That unnerved the hell out of me. It was a wake-up call. I emptied the rest of the bottle down the sink and went to lie down for a while. The weird thing was that I didn't feel that drunk, though. I was walking straight, thinking clearly. I was barely even buzzed. Lying there in the dark and thinking about what happened wasn't any better. I felt like I was going to start sobbing. After about an hour of tossing and turning and hating myself, I got up to use the bathroom and looked in the mirror again. I wanted to see myself smile, even if it wasn't real, just to know that it was still possible. I was even more sober than last time. I could feel the miserable weight of it. My reflection, though? A coy dimple at first, but before my eyes, it was stretching into a beaming grin. I felt my slack, loose face again with both hands. Then reaching out to touch the smile in the mirror, my hand tensed into a rigid claw. I didn't feel the glass. I felt the warm, moist, tightly pulled lip, the stubble of its face, the curve of its chin, my hand slipping through the mirror as though it wasn't even there. I wasn't afraid exactly, more mesmerized by something so far beyond my understanding. Then, when my reflection turned to walk away, it felt like part of me was leaving with it. I watched myself exit the bathroom on the other side of the glass. Now the mirror showed an empty bathroom, my reflection gone. I touched the glass again and felt the cold, smooth surface. I was about to try and sleep whatever this was off, but then I heard the door open. She's back! She's changed her mind! Suddenly, the mirror didn't matter anymore. I raced through the apartment faster than a kid on Christmas morning, stumbling to a halt when I reached the living room. It was empty. The door was locked. No one had entered, but then I heard her voice. Look, I know I said I wasn't coming back, but... Her voice was coming from behind me, sounding muffled, almost as though she was speaking underwater. I raced back to the bathroom, the mirror still empty of my reflection. I was beginning to think it was another hallucination when I heard my own voice coming from inside the mirror. It was muffled too, seemingly a long way off. But even if my reflection had left its bathroom and gone to its version of my living room, how could my girlfriend have entered that living room instead of my own? You do look different somehow, she said. I can't quite put my finger on it. Unless, of course, I had changed places with my reflection somehow. If he was in my real living room, and I was behind the mirror. Did you do something with your hair? It's usually parted the other way, she added. I'm just happy to see you, that's all my voice said. I guess you're not used to seeing me smile. Maybe you're right. It's a good change. 
I'd climbed onto the counter at this point, an inch from the glass, but still no reflection. I mapped the entire surface with my hands, then harder, pounding my fist against the mirror, watching the whole plane rattle against the wall. Hello? Can anyone hear me? I shouted. If they could, they made no sign. I heard them talking softly for a while, then she started to laugh. I don't remember the last time I heard her laugh. I was getting desperate by this point. I wanted to smash the mirror to pieces, but I was afraid that would block my only route home. I sprinted back to the living room, threw open the door, searching for something, anything to make sense out of this madness. I didn't make it far before I heard her scream though, and I felt compelled to run back and see what was going on. My heart leapt when I saw my reflection again in the bathroom mirror. He was still smiling, even humming to himself while he washed his hands in the sink, washing the blood from his hands. I couldn't hold back anymore. I threw my whole body against the mirror. It exploded on impact, splintering shards of shrapnel showing a thousand bloody hands which ran around me. I didn't stop, hurling myself again and again into the empty frame, smashing and driving each fragment of glass into my hands until there was nothing left but diamond dust. I was heaving for breath when I walked back into the living room. My real living room. I know it was real because I saw her on the couch, her throat and mouth cleanly slit from end to end, smiling wider than she ever had when she was with me. I took my keys and my wallet and I ran, leaving everything else behind for good. The police caught up to me about a week later. They interviewed me and took prints, but apparently the ones on the knife didn't match me. They were completely backward, in fact. I haven't had a drink since that day, but God knows I've wanted to. I guess I'm just too afraid to look in the mirror one day and see myself smile. We're ready. The potions where we're off soon, and I'll be able to see us again. She's way faster than us. But don't worry. We have the upper hand in this room. Do me a favor, will you? Pull that curtain over there. This is the morning man. Many of the owners of the inn disappeared without a trace, but we all know what happened to Otis. This statue you see here is what remains of him. He tried one too many spells and invocations. Somehow, the rock made a cast around his body, trapping him inside alive. They tried to pierce the rock in order to save him, but all of their tools would break when striking the cold obsidian stone. I cannot think of a worse way to die, confined in a microscopic and suffocating cage. Otis's tragic end topped off a story that I heard many nights ago, about a careless lad who stepped on the wrong elevator. Hello. I'm currently stuck in an elevator. It's been roughly 16 hours now since the elevator stopped, and I don't know what to do anymore. Several times I've contacted the 24-7 service number printed on the inside of this elevator, but they are no help. Neither are my parents, nor the police. By posting this, I'm hoping to get some advice or just people to talk to, maybe even an explanation for what's happening. I live on the fourth floor of my apartment building, 
I usually take the elevator to get there. I got home pretty early from my classes today, at about 1pm. Entered the elevator and as usual, pressed the button to the fourth floor. Everything was normal, except that between the third and fourth floor, the elevator came to a halt. Obviously, I was annoyed and called the number of the elevator company that I mentioned above. It's not the first time I got stuck in this elevator. Two years ago, the same thing happened, and after maybe 40 minutes of waiting, an elevator mechanic freed me. Back then, it was no big deal, so I wasn't really worried about it yesterday. I'm also not afraid of elevators, despite having had recurring nightmares involving them. Which, thinking about it now, is pretty weird. Over the phone, I told the customer service person my address and he assured me that a mechanic would be there within the next 30 to 60 minutes. Luckily for me, the Wi-Fi signal of my apartment is strong enough to be used from inside the elevator, so I decided to pass the time browsing the internet. After an hour and a half of waiting, I got impatient and, to be honest, a little worried. I wondered if they forgot about me or maybe got my address wrong, so I decided to call the same number again. Now, this is where things started to get weird. I was speaking to the same person who answered my call earlier. His name is Davis and told him that no mechanic showed up. However, he insisted that he does not remember my call from an hour and a half ago, and that my case is not stored on his system. He apologized for the inconveniences, and again, promised that a mechanic will arrive within an hour. Another hour passed. It was about 3.30pm now, and no one arrived. At this point, I started to get furious with the elevator company, and called them for a third time. Again, the same person answered, and, again, he did not remember me. My heart started racing. Does he have that many customers that he simply doesn't recognize my name or voice, even after a third time? Is he just pretending he can't remember me, and purposely not sending someone for some reason? I demanded to speak to his boss, but he said that he is currently alone in the office. I demanded that he stays on the phone with me until a mechanic arrives, but he told me he cannot do that. So once more, I waited, and once more, no one came. At this point, I've been stuck for almost four hours. It was time to call 911 because the elevator customer service was useless. Immediately, I recognised the voice of the 911 operator. It was the same person I spoke to during the last three phone calls. I thought to myself that this was impossible, that it must just be a man with a similar voice, but nonetheless, I was scared. I played it cool and explained my situation. He said he'll send someone to my location. They never came. Every minute, I was getting more worried and nervous about the whole situation. How is it possible that no one is helping me? I tried calling my mum, but she won't answer her phone. I texted and tried to call my friends, but the texts I sent are marked as unread. Emergency services seem to forget or ignore me. I fell asleep at about 9pm for maybe three hours, but I can't sleep anymore. Right now, the clock on my laptop shows 5.21am, and I'm still in this small, dirty elevator. It's not even big enough for me to fully stretch my legs. The light is cold and dim. The brown, windowless walls feel suffocating. 
I stopped using my phone because the battery was getting low. It's currently at 4%. Now the same thing is happening to my laptop. There are no noises coming from the outside. Just complete silence. It seems like no one is in the building. Did no one try to use the elevator since I got stuck? I have no idea, but it seems unlikely. I feel helpless and don't know what to do. I'm not even sure where I am anymore. Relax. We'll seal it. There's a reason why we unveiled the Morning Man. It's showtime. Over there, Traveler. Point the mirror shard at the Reaver. There. It's done. The Morning Man always cries in the presence of the Blood Reaver. A long-lost father crying for his long-lost daughter. How can Otis's statue cry? <laughs> that question is beyond me, Traveler. I suppose there are bonds too strong to rule apart, even for death. He probably can't rest knowing his daughter is still trapped in one of these crystals. Follow me. You did a good job back there, you know. Maybe one day we'll be able to finish what Otis started and free Amelia. Or at the very least, find a way to end her suffering. You must be exhausted. I can fix a room for you. It's a long walk back to the city. Oh, I see. They're waiting for you back home, huh? Fair enough. The trail should be safer without the reaver prowling about. But please, stop by again if you can. It was nice seeing you. Goodbye, traveler. Till we meet again. In this life. Or the next. And now it's announcement time. Before you leave, I'd like to take a moment and thank the people who provided their voices to read these horror tales. Along with everyone else who's been involved with bringing these horrific tales to life, here at the Cursed Inn. If you're a writer and you think your story is sinister enough to be featured on our podcast, or if you'd like to volunteer as a voice actor, send us a demo at thecursedin at gmail.com. We're always looking for new stories and talents to scare our guests. And please, don't forget to check out our page on Facebook and Twitter for updates. We'll see you very, very soon.